Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending August 20. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up this week, you'll hear us talk about progressive dinners, how Bobby loves them, how I don't know what they are, how we can't really do them anymore. Uh, and also, we are joined by John Dushbark to talk about his film, Come Back Anytime, which is screening as part of Myth, and it's very lovely. We have a chat to Digger in our Down and Dirty segment about what to grow on nature strips. Uh, and I also have a chat about telling the truth and when I probably should have just lied. We were joined for Brass Tax by Zeb Nichols, who's a climate researcher and a contributing author to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report. And we chat about the dangers of baby teeth and just parenting in general and life. Plus, our Friday funny bugger was Irving Majumda. Melbourne's own Triple R. One of the things that I was organising with some mates before, um, God, before was it before lockdown four? No, there was no before lockdown. It's just there was before times. This year, yeah, yeah. <laughs> BC AD. I think it was kind of in between. Oh, it might have been at the start of the year. Um, was a progressive dinner. I'm not sure if you either know what either of you know what a progressive dinner is. No. Um, so it is when neighbours organise a dinner between, say, three houses. So the first house will have an entree, the second house will have a main, and the last house will have a dessert. And generally, yeah, you live nearby, either on the same street or in the same neighbourhood. Um, I think it's something that they used to do quite a bit a while ago. Um, the I've done two of these and went to organise a third one. Um, the first one I did, uh, I was living in Oak Park at the time, I think, and so we had a house in Oak Park, Pascavale, and I think there were two in Pascavale. Um but we were doing uh, we were doing entree. It's a lot of fun. So like you organise it. We were doing uh, entree. Um, I think we did like bruschetta or something. So we had like a, a theme, and then you accompany accompany it with with drinks, and you can you can decorate your place or whatever. But whoever is hosting provides uh, all the food and drinks, so that you don't have to carry anything in between houses. Um, and then the next house, I think they did a big paella. Paella. God, I can't talk this morning. Paella. Familiarity. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, familiarity. Familiarity. Mm. Um, moving on. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so they did that with sangria, um, but it was it, it, like I said, it's a lot of fun. But I think this first one that I did, I think it was about two kilometres from entree to main, and I have never heard a bunch of women complain so much about the distance between the two houses. It was quite a quite a while, I think. But by the time we got to, um, we finished our main and we were going to dessert. Um, I think we were contemplating getting a maxi taxi, but um, it was only about one and a half kilometres. So we walked to the last one. Uh, everyone was a little bit tipsy by this stage and having a good time. And then and we had dessert at the last place. And whoever is doing dessert is pretty much like the entree and the main. You're there for an hour and a half to two hours at each house. But if you're doing dessert, then everyone is going to be there until you get kicked out. So you don't want dessert. Well, yeah. The, the uh, friends we it's had. Sarah Smith, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Some people love Did it. Daniel Burt, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you do. Uh, I, I think last time we, well, the first one that we did, um, we, God, we stayed there till, I, I think they had us for at least five hours. Everyone went a little bit loose and crazy. Um, but I did another one, um, which was kind of in the in the Maribyrnong area, and it was a lot closer. I think there was less than a kilometre between apartments and stuff. It's, it's a lot of fun. It really is. People get right into this it. This seems like the antithesis of these times. Like yes. moving freely through the streets, going from household to household in giant clumps of humans. I know. I've never heard of one of these things. But yeah, right. It's making me nostalgic for something I didn't know existed. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think when we were trying to do uh, this initially, um, it, it didn't seem like we were in a lockdown. But one of the things where you couldn't have people over at your house. So yeah, that's that's what put it because I mean we've had lockdowns where there's restrictions you can go out and yeah, have, yeah, have yeah. breakfast and stuff but you just can't have anyone at your house so that kind of put that um in on the back burner so we haven't been able to do that um but yeah it it, it is a lot of fun this sounds like a nightmare it does sound like a nightmare doesn't yeah. it well, I'm trying to be positive like, about oh, it oh my god I'm so glad you think it's terrible too so the stress that your description was causing me was quite major but I didn't want to say it because I thought you'd be like oh that's Sarah to be stressed by something oh, no. like that well, what yeah. what is it that's stressing you guys? The the hosting of people. No, it, I, well, my thing is just when I've settled in, I've got to move on. That's one thing. Okay, okay. The, yep. yeah, I'd say the stressfulness that there isn't an end point, an immediate end point. So, say when I'm getting ready for a party, I get very anxious. My friends would tell you to get to the party. So yep. I'm not a very nice person between 
the moment we leave the house and say the party we're getting to because for some reason the whole like we, I've just got to start the thing that we're meant to be at and then yeah. I can relax I can't relax until I'm at the thing so I feel like I'd never be relaxed <laughs> mm. until I got to dessert point really yeah because there's t- there's too many I love the excitement of you know what's coming next what's the next host going to be and it's not enough for a host to be like, God, I'm hosting people for the entire night. It's like, no, you've just got a window of an hour and a half to two hours. What about the people who don't like to leave until they've cleaned? Uh, That is me to a T. I'll I'll probably uh, start to tidy up um, as people are there, Um, but then I I think we'd just leave. Yeah. As as nice as, yeah, as clean as I can do before we've got to move on to the next one. Because I, like, I organise events and I love these things. I am the organiser of all these things. I'm like, time frame, finish your drinks, go to the bathroom, we're leaving in 10 minutes. You'd say, you you hate this idea, don't you? Yeah, (laughs) a lot. I, yeah, I just say I'll meet you at dessert. Right. Yeah. You, you, well, do you allow say, that? I'd well, say, well, you're not invited then. Yeah, well, I, I mean, and so you're hosting dessert then, so you have to be oh. making dessert. Oh, oh, then you get no, there. I just want to be the person that arrives for dessert. Oh, then everyone's got all the in-jokes that you have no oh, idea. I know. Yeah, that's yeah. bad. It's so annoying and they're all annoyingly drunk. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, no, you have to be there from the I start. I think maybe I'd want to do it with you because you sound like someone who could just – maybe having time frames would be helpful. So I felt like there was purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Something Everything you're saying is making me panic a little bit and I don't know why. I <laughs> but don't if know. Bobby thinks it's a good idea, I'm there. Yeah, that's what I mean. I trust Bobby. Yeah. I wouldn't trust you, <laughs> Daniel. Yeah. No, I trust you in other things, Daniel. I yeah, trust no, you, no. I trust you with making sure that people don't text incorrect facts through to the text line <laughs> to correct them and facts in general. And yeah. I trust Bobby with event organisation and ensuring that I had a good time at a progressive dinner. <laughs> And I trust me with nothing. <laughs> you just come, have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favourite thing to so do you what's your favourite bit? Like if you to host. To host. Um I have done entree and I've done main. I haven't done dessert and I don't know that I would be up for dessert because yeah, like everyone does. Stick around. Do you for dress a long up? Time. I mean what was this walk oh, difficult because no, no. why? Oh, it was just difficult because it was a couple of kilometres <laughs> after you'd had a couple of drinks. And, I mean, as fun as it is to go to the next house, I mean, you were settled in and you are comfy. And mm. you, the last one that we did was um, in Maribyrnong, where I live now. And, I mean, there was an easy route to get from B, like A to B. Mm-hmm. But the um, the people that were doing dessert, they were like, I've got a shortcut. I'm like, oh, can't, like we could just go down the main road. And the shortcut... We went through paddocks. I don't know what she was thinking. And it was dark at this point. It was like, I could roll my ankle. This is ridiculous. Anyway, we finally got to dessert and it was a deconstructed pavlova and it was the most delicious thing I've ever had. Um, And then it just got really loose. But there were potential injuries along the Uh, way. Yeah, it sounds like you organise a progressive dinner and you end up on Michelle Laurie's podcast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Are you allowed to ride, Cher? Between places? I mean, you, you can. It does defeat the purpose of it. The thing of a progressive dinner is like that you're walking from A to B. Unless it's too far and then you go with a group, then you can all ride share. It's about being together, you know? Okay. How many you people? hate this. How many people? <laughs> like eight? Um, yeah, I think we probably had, yeah, eight to ten kind of a thing. So generally there'll be one or two. And you don't have to bring anything. No, you don't, it all has to be prepared at, at your house kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Is there so, any weird competitiveness between yeah. oh, the people? Absolutely. So, like, oh, that was a bit of a shit, shit entree. <laughs> oh, well, people are very – like, everyone goes all out. So I, I guess the people um, that are doing it, you, you have to kind of enjoy um, cooking or, or just get a little bit excited about it because people do want to make the best meal of the whole thing. And after a couple of drinks, we tell each other exactly what we think of the meals <laughs> and everything as well. So. <laughs> Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. John Dashbark is a Tokyo-based American director, writer and cinematographer whose new documentary, Come Back Anytime, about a master ramen chef and his legendary Tokyo noodle shop, screens online as part of Myth Play. And to tell us about it, the filmmaker joins us now. John, welcome to Breakfasters. Uh, thanks for having me. Good morning. Good, good morning. Good uh, Now, Masamoto, uh, who is he? Why, why are you drawn to him? I think uh, he's he's just a, one of those uh, people you meet in your life who is is just incredibly unique and has a charisma that that uh, that draws people around him, which is part of a big part of his success. He's got this. He's been running this ramen shop 
with his wife, Kazuko, uh, in Tokyo for 40 years. And he's developed this pretty faithful following of customers who become this community. And that's, that's what really drew me to it. I mean, obviously the ramen is, is delicious as well, but, uh, but that's, that's what, what made me want to make a, a film about him is, is he's, uh, he's, he's a very gregarious and, and very charismatic person who has found a way to make that, uh, an integral part of his successful business. And I, I found that really fascinating as I, as I watched it. How did you come across, uh, him and this story in this place? A friend of mine, a Japanese friend of mine, I, almost, I, I guess, like seven or eight years ago, uh, <clears throat> asked me one day if I wanted to go camping and wild mushroom foraging up in uh, Niigata Prefecture, up in the mountains. And I, I thought that sounded really interesting. And so I said, sure. And he said, okay, well, first we have to go meet to my local ramen shop to, uh, to meet some of the people who are going to be, you know, who have invited us. And I said, okay. And then I discovered that this was a, an outing that had been organized by uh, Mr. Ueda, you know, the, the, the master of this place, and that that's actually a, a fairly common uh, occurrence um, throughout the year. And, and so I did that. And well, I, I, that's when I first had the ramen was when I went to the shop to, to meet him. And I, and I, I love the ramen and had a fantastic weekend. And just started going back there after that. And, uh, he has pizza parties, which never made it into the film, but, but he, he has a, this, um, garden country garden in Chiba, just sort of an hour from, from Tokyo where he built his own pizza oven, mostly just so he could have pizza parties for his regulars <laughs> who all kind of make it out there. Uh, and uh, like I said, I, I did film that, but but we filmed way more than we were able to use because we, we spent a year with him, just kind of tagging along with him and, and, and shadowing him and his, his customers and his friends. Can you describe the ramen? Why is it so iconic in Tokyo? I think it's, you know, it's, it's, not, um, it's not in any – well, it's, it's highly rated in sort of the tabulog, which is like the, the restaurant rating guide here, of course. But it's, it's, it's not um, – uh, necessarily, you know, award-winning. It's more legendary among the people who have discovered it, and and I think it's because it's uh, it, it he well he's been making it for forty years, and it's a it's a classic Tokyo-style ramen, which which some of the customers describe explain is it really brings back memories of their childhood of of the old street vendor ramen, and and uh, it's just a very simple, clear t- uh, soy-based broth with thin curly noodles and and then he has this very unique chashu that that he created that he describes in the movie how and why he he came to it that's that's very it's different from most chashu so it's a it's so it's a unique bowl but it it um it's just one of those tastes that that is so comforting uh, every time you have it and i and i i spent a lot of time trying to figure out whether that's because the place is so comforting or, or the food. And I, I think I discovered that it's really one feeds the other. And, and that's the experience that I wanted to try to convey. Uh, so, you know, as an outsider who, who discovered this place, it really, I did think of it as a film uh, for, for other, you know, for people like me who are not Japanese, uh, just to kind of try to express what it's like to, to, to be in Japan and to meet, you know, Japanese people uh, who who welcome you into their community, and, and I wanted to try to try to express that uh, through film and, and have people experience that themselves. Yeah, as you say, you join uh, some of these foraging trips. Is that a sign that you've made it as a local when you <laughs> get invited to go? <laughs> I, I guess so. I mean, I, he's pretty welcoming. Uh, you know, if people express a real interest of, in going, I think anybody's welcome. But I think in my case, it, you know, it was a little bit different because. He hadn't even met me, but he told. But his friend was was already in in that that you know level <laughs> where he was being invited on these things, and so I think he he loves meeting people from all cultures and all over the world, and so I think he just just I got a, a foreigner you know a bonus free pass mm-hmm. to cut to the head of the line. When I visited Japan um, to, to visit some friends who lived there, uh, I got taken around to little places you know you have to come to this noodle bar you have to go here and do you think there's other Masamoto's in in Tokyo that like you haven't discovered is is this a a common thing that people have this amazing secret you know ramen joint or noodle joint that you don't know about absolutely I think there are and I even 
considered putting a title at the beginning of the movie that says something like, there are 9,000 restaurants in Tokyo. This is the story of one of them. You know, yeah, yeah. But I just decided I didn't want to do that kind of framing device. But but it, but it definitely is, uh, you know, so if anybody's seeing this thinking like, well, I know a place like that. It's like, yeah, of course, I hope you do. And <laughs> I hope you found your own and I hope everybody has a place like this. Um, and I just wanted to to sort of uh, try to express my own experience uh, of this this one unique place that, you know, um, some reviewer mentioned Cheers, the, the American television show, uh, you know, where everybody knows your name. And, and it's sort of a place that everybody hopes that they can find where, mm. where you feel at home as who, soon as you walk in there. Who is he as a person? He suggests at one point he was going down the path of being a gangster. Yeah, he, he had a... He had a um, uh, a little brush with trouble when he was young, and that's that's some, described briefly in the film. He he, I mean, which was is a big surprise, I think, to most people who have met him later in life, because he's he's very mellow now. But but he was a little bit uh, aimless in his youth, and and uh, he that same. I mean, he's he has this characteristic where he's he's open to trying anything and everything and i think maybe that got him into a little little trouble when he was young uh but it also resulted in in maybe his his father-in-law saw this in him um and he gave him an opportunity to uh open a restaurant and and he just said look just just you know get focused and and here's a here's a space and he he just decided to dive and he learned how to make ramen over three months and and that's what he's been doing ever since. And mm. he just kind of uh, decided to take this different path. I think for the sake of his family and his wife, because he did get in a little trouble with, with some gambling debts, which thankfully somebody helped him uh, helped him with. And, and so he, he spent a lot of time paying that off, I think, too. Yeah. He just had no other choice. Well, the, the film explores how he's self-taught, and he's clearly passionate about ramen. But you also ask him, what do you like? And he says, counting the money. So <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. <laughs> So is he is he at core a successful business person? What do you think? I I think so. I think you know I I I think he is is probably and should be pleased that that he's been able to make a life for for a fa- you know and, and raise a family and put put three children through college you know if they wanted to and we didn't really have time to get into his whole family life. Somebody you know, asked, well, what about his, his children? And, and it's just, you know, there just wasn't, wasn't time to include everything. But, but uh, I think, I think that's one of the reasons why he's not really concerned about, uh, you know, passing it on to anybody is, is it served its purpose to him. And it, it is, and it's so much a part of him. And that's, I think, uh, Kazuko San feels that as well, that, that uh, there would be no point in, in it continuing without him. So um, it is, yeah. I mean, I think I think ultimately, um, well, it, it, now he's he he doesn't need the money. He just does it because he loves it, mm. and, and he'll keep doing it until he doesn't. I think you wanted to be here for the festival. Obviously, you can't. Yeah. What do you think your film offers to Melbournians who are you know locked down and can't travel beyond five kilometers? <laughs> well, I guess it, it, it's a little bit of an escape at the moment. That that to this uh, to this. Hope time that we hope we'll all return to uh, as soon as possible, where where you can go and, and hang out with people and be close to people uh, and 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 have a, a community. Um, so it's it's ironically, I think I think people are connecting with it for that reason mm. that that it, it it offers some comfort. You know, I I wanted to make a movie. It is. It's been called a feel-good movie, which I, I, you know, some people think is majoritative. I, I embrace it because the place feels good, and I wanted to to express that feeling. Um, so I, I hope that that uh, people, I guess, any everywhere in Australia um, can can hear this. You know, I, I can can see it now on on Myth Play. So I, I hope I hope they might get a little little respite from uh, from the isolation through Indeed. it. Well, the film is come back anytime. And you can catch it at play.mif.com.au. And we've been speaking with filmmaker John Dashbach. Thanks very much, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I love the show, by the way. I'm a new fan. Of <laughs> <laughs> oh, Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I listen to it. Triple R. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. Can you stop singing about dirt? Digger's here to reflect on his gardening. What's going on, Digger? Ah, uh, so much going on. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> sure. <laughs> no, not a hell of a lot, to be honest. <laughs> um, but no, it was a, a, a good chance. I had to talk to um, wonderful Elizabeth McCarthy through the week, show's producer, and we you know, bouncing around a few ideas. And she popped out with, what's the deal with nature strips? And I thought, that's a great one. I've avoided it for a long time, and it, now I've had time to sit down and research it. So I spent the last two weeks scouring through every municipality's nature strip guidelines. Jesus, you really don't. metropolitan Melbourne. You really don't have anything to do, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and I gave up about halfway. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. So, no, 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 I really did. So I thought, you know, it's, there's lots of um, misunderstanding about what nature strips are for and what we can do with them and all that kind of stuff. So... You know, it's, there's just so many variations and every council is kind of different, but some are kind of the same. Some you need permits, some you don't need permits. So with all the data I collected, I thought I'd break out the old SWOT analysis. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Remember, have you ever done a SWOT analysis? Yeah. What, what is it again? Yes, I remember strengths, it from... Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats. Yeah, that's it. Sweet. A SWOT analysis of nature strips. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So here I broke. So I got all the data and I just broke it down into those simple four points of what you know some of the information, because really you're going to have to look at it's so complicated. You're going to have to go just to do your own council <laughs> website <laughs> if you if you're really thinking about doing this and converting in nature strip because it is possible, but there are limitations. And so yeah, so here's some of the big information that I found. So the strengths of you know, transforming in nature strip because at the moment they're all just grass. And the reason for that is that there's council services underneath them. So the strengths. Provide habitat. You can plant them up with all different sorts of stuff and go back and provide some biodiversity and some habitat for some native animals that have lost a lot of it purely because we've put in grass nature strips and not diversity. You know, they're just simple grass. So think of the square meterage in all of the suburbs taken up by nature strips and how much biodiversity we could put back into the system. It'd be huge. So I reckon that's a great strength. The runoff of water. So just by having one simple species of plants, there's a lot of water that runs off and is pumping into our waterways, which we could be soaking up and putting into biodiverse plants and holding a lot of that water rather than it running off. So that's always a big one to save a bit of water. The last one I thought about, this is for my own purposes because I'm doing it for me too, is just a bit of personality in the street. Hmm. Now, I know that there's street trees and they, they try to get some sort of continuity with that so it provides a cohesive landscape. But we all have different front gardens and personalities and different coloured front doors and all this kind of stuff. So I don't see why it should stop there. It could really The nature strip could really become a part of your front garden design to look like it's all one cohesive landscape. So just to give a bit of personality, you know, some people have got pink cars, some people have got white cars, so why can't we do it with our nature strips? Wouldn't you be worried about scallywags and ne'er-do-wells? Oh, of course. You always <laughs> got to worry about them, but, you know, that's that's part of the fun, isn't it? <laughs> just with Digger. Yeah, Digger sitting in the, the garden with, a shovel. with his gun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's all about diversity. It's all about diversity. Um, straight on to weaknesses. So there is limitations in the species that you can do. Most of commonly... You can't reach a height of over 500 mil with any of your plants. So that's not too high. So that limits you a little bit. And obviously the placement of those plants is limited due to people have to be able to get in and out of cars. You can't block sight lines oh. um, and people have to be able to put their bin placement out. So it can be a bit restrictive in actually how much of the nature strip can be planted out. You know? So with a lot of them, with the distances from the footpath, the distances from the road, the distances from the curb. A lot of the time, you'd just be left with this Brazilian strip up the middle of maybe 300 mil. So that can work. It's better than nothing, but it still means that you'd have to maintain the outside edge of that. So, you know, that's a, that's a little bit restrictive. How deep um, is the soil, sorry? Sorry? How deep goes the soil? The de uh, soil goes a couple of metres. It goes right down through because we've got services that, you know, so you'd have your main sewer and mains water that would sit at about 1.2 metres deep. And then there's soil continuing after that. Okay. So that's a little bit of a weakness. And that's the same thing for food plants. So they definitely discourage fruit trees because of their tree roots that could potentially go into, you know, services. 
which is a bit of a contradiction because they've got street trees that do it. It happened to me at the front of my house with the street tree. It went into the main lines. So it's a little bit of a weakness that, you know, you can't put food in there. Well, I wouldn't – look, I'm going to be a bit controversial. I wouldn't recommend putting food in a nature strip purely because of the pollution you know, if you're growing food in the nature strip, you've got lots of car exhausts going, people starting their cars mm. for one and then traffic going up and down. So, you know, it's entirely your choice, but I'd probably steer clear of it. I don't think it's the most um, organic way to produce food. Plus the scallywags. Plus the scallywags. Um, Plus, opportunities. I've got to I tell think- you, dogs, Ralph loves, we've got a lot of these in our area, a lot. Ralph loves them for his business. Oh, they do. They love them. Same with mine. It's always the yeah. same. So He backs right um, in. And that's where people come up with, well, how about raised structures, you know, build raised ah. garden beds. So a lot of councils don't like them too because of the materials used. They can be hazardous. They can, you know, have sharp edges on them, all this kind of stuff. So it will vary from council to council, but a lot of the time they discourage. I know a lot of people do it, and most of the people that are doing it uh, will ask for forgiveness, not permission, you know, so they'll wait until someone complains or something happens and then they'll have to be torn out. Um, opportunities. I love this one's my favourite one because you get to choose the maintenance. The thing that pisses me off about nature strips is that they're the council's property but the house, the resident's responsibility to maintain, which I think that's bullshit. So if I'm going to have to maintain it, I think I should choose what it consists of. So... A lot of the councils, you can actually have just plain compacted gravel or plain mulch if you wanted to with no plantings whatsoever, which would be a lot less maintenance. So I think that's a great one. You can choose the maintenance of it. The other one, the opportunity is obviously if you go with Indigenous plants, the benefits to climate change, we're not going to be using fertilisers and waters and all those kind of things. Um, the soil will benefit way better from it too because it's just having a monoculture sitting on it for years and years and years is not doing the soil much good. So, so many opportunities to improve the soils. Lastly, the threats. So, the neighbours and the scallywags are the threats. Okay. You can't, you jump <laughs> Daniel the can't wait. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, even if you re-landscape your nature strip, if you're joining, you've got neighbours that join, um, and they leave theirs as grass, that running grass is going to constantly keep invading, you know. It's going to keep coming in to try and go over. So that can cause a lot of issues. Some neighbours just won't like the idea that you're changing the streetscape and you're going out on your own. So there can be, you know, very interesting discussions about that kind of stuff. Um, and la- the last threat is obviously if, can- if something ever goes wrong and council need access to those services, they have every right, they just dig it up. They don't even need your permission to dig it up. But it's at your cost, though. And that's that's a little bit scary. Like, if you've done some nice, you know, paving or whatever it might be, they just rip it up and they give, send you the bill for doing so. So that can be a little bit of a threat. Mm. Do you mow your neighbour's nature strip? We do. Whoever's mowing go, does each other's. Oh, when we that's good. Imagine yeah. digging and mowing your nature strip. I know, it'd be God, so it'd cool. Be perfect. <laughs> Nah, I'm as rough as guts. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you got one heel wheel hanging and they park too close to the to the curb and you don't want to take their mirror out, so they're holding the, the bloody mower up on one wheel trying to <laughs> And then you do the big gouge out and you've got no excuses. Like, he's going to know it's me. <laughs> uh, so definitely check with your local council first before undertaking any ambitious Absolutely, absolutely. Check with the council. Some of them are great. They've got great diagrams, even plant lists, some great suggestions. So go through your individual councils. Amazing. Thanks very much, Digger. Pleasure. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. I went away with uh, a bunch of uh, footy teammates at the time. Uh, We went to Wangaratta for a weekend. Um, One of the girls had this a uh, holiday spot up there, like a cabin where she'd always go every year and, and she invited a few of us up. So um, myself and another friend, we were just going for the one nights. So we were just going Friday night and we had to come back on Saturday because we had cricket on the Sunday uh, and everyone else was staying for two nights. But after we'd spent a night there and we went jet skiing and we were just had a campfire and it was just so much fun, I was like, oh, don't you just want to stay another day? And she was like, yeah, yeah, let's just stay. I go, but what are we going to do? Like, because we've got to play cricket tomorrow. She goes, what we'll do is we'll just say that um, 
the car broke down. We'll just text them tomorrow morning and say the car broke down. We're in Wangaratta. Sorry, we can't play. I was like, oh. But maybe we should just tell the truth. Like, I think if we do that tomorrow morning, that we're just leaving them without an opportunity to get anyone to fill our spot. And this is the Premier Division, so there's, like, state and Aussie players that are playing in this competition as well. So we're like, it's not playing in the twos or threes. We need a... I think we need to be open and honest because I think that they'll find out. I just feel like they're going to find out what we're doing. We need to be honest. And she was like, no, no, let's lie. And my <laughs> friends, we were, all, we were all discussing what we should do. And I think majority of the people were saying lie. There was like one or two people going, yeah, Bobby, tell the truth. What would you guys do? Would you tell the truth or uh, would you do I've the- never been that good at sport that I'd really have to consider <laughs> my absence from the sport team as possibly affecting their outcome. Or <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but I'd probably be more comfortable with a lie under those circumstances. Yeah. Um, because I would want, I wouldn't want the team thinking you're just a bloody slacker. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, right. I'm kind of surprised at your inconsistency. Last time it was when you were (laughs) screwing around in the asylum. Yeah. And then someone... (laughs) I know. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, let's lie. And everyone's a coward for not lying. Yes. Yeah, now suddenly... (laughs) I know. (laughs) This goody two-shoes here. (laughs) I know. Well, that was probably 10 years earlier that I did that. Mm, So maybe I learned from my mistakes. So I'm just like, no, we've got to tell the truth. So, yeah, my mate was like, she's like, no, let's lie. And she was just adamant. I go, no, let's just tell the truth. So I stupidly, stupidly told the truth. And I called up the captain... And I gave her time. Like, so I, what was the truth? Like, how did you you said, um, "Oh, sorry, we're not going to come because we've decided we want to jet ski." Pretty much. Oh my God. And I, you know what? I think my friends were because my everyone was standing around listening, and they're like, "Bobby, there's the truth," and you just went too like you didn't have to tell her every single detail. Like, oh that, no! I know. That's a good time you're having. Or? I just said, "I go." We're just hey. going to drink some wine. Six, yeah, I just said we're drinking beers. We're having we're with mates, and we're going jet skiing again tomorrow. And to be honest. We just would prefer to do that rather than come back and play cricket tomorrow. And everyone is listening to me going, Bobby, no. Why? It was stupid. Anyway, um, she said, she goes, you know what, Bobby? She goes, I appreciate your honesty. Um, I'm really effing peed off, though, because that's two people that we need to find. I'm just like, yeah, no, I understand that. That's why I wanted to tell you now. And I'm really sorry, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, so they ended up getting, you know who they got filling in for them? Mm. She used to play a bit of cricket back in the day. She wasn't too bad. Moana Hope. Oh, my God. Yeah, so she played at my cricket club as well. So. I didn't know she played cricket. Better yeah. cricketer than a footballer? She was. Uh, she could have been really good. Like, she was a fast bowler. If she had ah. kept going at it but she chose football instead, she would have been, a, a, like, a really good cricketer as well. Um, but football, I think she was a better footballer. Uh, but, yeah, so they got her to, to fill in and she brought a mate along. So they filled the spots. Um, and then we had a great weekend, right? But then when we came back, I <laughs> said to my mate, <laughs> I go, well, we have to go to cricket training now. And my friend's like, well, I'm not going. How embarrassing. Like, we have told them that we were just having a, a piss-up on the weekend and that's our choice rather than playing with them. <laughs> I'm not going to training. I'm just like, all right, well, I'll go. Maybe you can come, like, later in the week. She just didn't want to. weird confidence over you. like. <laughs> well, I just thought we have to front up. Like, yeah. yes, we've done this, but we have to front up. I mean, I, I did go overboard with the truth-telling. Um, so we went to training. Uh, so I went to training and was I just copped it and everyone was pissed at me and I whatever. How uh, does that play out, people being pissed at you? Are they just ignoring you? Are they actually saying uh, thanks a lot, Bobby? No, well, I just, I, I acknowledged it and I said to everyone, I apologised to everyone and, like, individually, I didn't want to make a big thing of it and, right. like, everyone come in, but I just went because everyone was visibly annoyed, so rather than being pissed and not talk to me, I just went up and I just apologised and they just said what they thought and I said, yep, fine, I'll, I'll take that, that's fair enough. So I coughed it, it was brutal, but it was, it was fair enough. And then I went to training again on Thursday. That was fair enough. And then they read the teams and I was playing in the threes. So I didn't get dropped to the twos. I got dropped to the threes, right? I'm like, okay. And my mate didn't get named at all because she didn't even rock up to training. Anyway, I spoke to her. I'm just like, she's like, what happened? I was like, well, everyone hates me, but that's okay. I'm playing in the threes, but that's okay. I'll work my way back up. And she was just like, she's like, I can't go back there. I go, well, you have to come back at some point. She never came back to the cricket after that. She never played at that club. I because played. of you and your goddamn truth-telling. Well, 
Yes, I guess it was, right? Uh, if we had a light, perhaps she would have gone on to play Playing for Australia. Playing on a Sunday is a recipe for this sort of shit. You know what? That is women's sport to a <laughs> team. <laughs> they, because all, all the grounds were occupied by men yeah. on Saturday, so women always get Sundays. So yeah. it's the goddamn patriarchy. It's the patriarchy that made that happen, not me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, so she never came back. I played threes for two weeks. Well, of course you, you're the coach, you're going to go, they don't care about cricket. Yeah. yeah. Their enthusiasm and passion is gone. Yeah. And to be fair, it probably had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it had. She didn't come back. I think I played the rest of that season and then I went overseas for a couple of years. Still worked in cricket, but didn't have the passion to play at the top level. Um, and then I think after that, I did end up playing in the twos and just more social and I enjoyed it so much more. So that was the... Tipping point. The top level, were you good enough to take it all the way? Uh, As a junior, but then after – because I'd been playing cricket from when I was like 13 or 14 – um, like at a state level. Uh, and then I, I got an Aussie squad when I was like 18 or 19. But then as soon as I hit 19, then I think I was just over it. So yeah, I took a yeah. bit of time away. And then I realised, my God, how much fun can you have on weekends without sport? <laughs> mm. uh, I feel like if you grew up with more guilt in your culture, it wouldn't have even occurred to you to skip cricket. Yeah. Like how yeah. could you enjoy your time on the jet ski? knowing that people were sweltering in the outfield. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it was yeah. a scorcher. Yeah. My Catholic guilt would have at possibly told the truth because i try to lie. I'd start lying. The lie would become the truth. <laughs> and then I my whole weekend would be ruined because I'd think about those people hating me all weekend. Yeah. And then I'd feel guilty. So it's both not wanting to be hated but also the guilt of missing out. That's what would have happened to me in that situation. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and I'm quite jealous that at least you – well, at least you got to enjoy your weekend. Yeah. I had a bloody ball. I did. And, but also the antipathy towards you on the field or by your teammates, I'm like, I wonder how much of that is you left us in the lurch versus oh. – I'm jealous we didn't make that decision. <laughs> how many times have they been on camping trips and just wanted yeah. to stay there as well? Yeah, and cut it short. I just yeah. – I have a newfound respect for your ability to, like, cop it. Maybe that's that thing. You know, we see footballers interviewed and they've gone out and got drunk and stuffed it up for their team. They go, I just had to cop it in the change rooms and I apologise to the boys. Oh, sorry, all the girls. <laughs> but uh, And, uh, you know, they just I really, you know, I've, I paid my time or whatever. And I think, how can you do it? I just couldn't. I think I'd be like your friend and never turn up again. I, I'm yeah. so impressed by your ability just to turn up to training and <laughs> apologise and have people that angry at you. I hate people being angry at me. Yeah. I think I, I yeah, I, I mean, I do too. That's why I just want to get it over and done with so we can get on with it. Right. But the coach did, now the coach has snuffed out a cricket career in your friend. Is that possible? Or who snuffed it out? Bobby. Well, okay. <laughs> I don't think Bobby. Do you mean ruined her cricket career? Yeah. yeah. Because, well, well, she, she never turned up again. Well, yeah, I mean, that's... Because the resist, was there was friction and resistance. Mm. I mean, if she was that good, she surely actually, the coach would have called and said, we need you back. Yeah, I mean, she probably just ignored the calls because she didn't want to get told off. Oh, I don't God. know. Um, she, she was. She was a leg spin bowler and she was one of the greatest leg spin bowlers you've ever seen in this country. But anyway... Uh, really? Oh, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's not my fault. Not my fault. <laughs> she <laughs> says the moral of the story. Triple R. Last week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report was released, described by the UN Secretary-General as a code red for humanity. To discuss the report this morning for Brass Tax, we're joined by climate researcher from the University of Melbourne and a contributing author to the IPCC report, Zebedee Nichols. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for being here. The, uh, the report runs to thousands of pages. In the spirit of the segment, can you get down to Brass Tax for us? Yes, no worries. So I think there's three key things to take away from it. So one, climate change is happening. That's clearer than ever before. The second, climate change is caused by humans and specifically the burning of fossil fuels. And third, and I think this is the most important one, is that there's more evidence now that we're still in control. And if we actually reduce emissions to zero, the climate will stabilise. Now, of course, that's a big if, but I can't stress enough that one of the key conclusions from this report is that our future is not primarily a question of physics, it's really a question of what actions we take next. 
Okay. So what does Australia need to do over the next 30 to 50 years? So let's take one step back. Um, climate change is obviously a global problem. So unlike, for example, littering, if I litter in Australia, it's not a problem for France. If we burn fossil fuels in Australia, it's a problem for all of the globe. So on a global scale, we need to have emissions reductions of about 40 to 60% by 2030. And we need to be at zero emissions on balance by 2050 as a globe. Um, so the IPCC stays policy neutral, but clearly the governments of the world need to work out how they're going to share that burden to um, achieve those emissions reductions. Australia's current targets are about 28% reductions by 2030. And so if globally we're going to be at 40 to 60%, then someone else is going to have to pick up the slack mm. if we're only going to go to 28%. So those inclined to sit on their hands in Australia might say, well, you know, Australia's a bit player, look at China, pick on them. What do you say to that? The, the politics of this is extremely complicated and something which um, really comes to a head in the IPCC reports where it's the sort of science policy interface. As a scientist, we try and assess the scientific picture and present, okay, here are the options, here are the implications of different emissions choices, and then it's up to governments to go and negotiate. And that's what we're going to see in um, COP26, so the big meeting of governments, which will happen later this year in uh, Glasgow, and it will be up to them to then decide how this plays out. But there are certainly a lot of interesting political questions and ethical questions about who should be shouldering the next big cuts yet, sorry, who should be taking the next big cuts, and who are the most important um, players to look at in this area. For listeners, you're sitting in front of a map of the world. What are some tangible uh, projections for what the report might portend for the future of the planet that we can look at and say, this will change. What you think of as, as now, it will be different in the future. That's a really good question. So I think um, one of the most obvious ones to me from this report and which comes out in the, the early parts is the temperature extremes we used to think of as extreme. So one in 10 year events, say, or one in 50 year events will become much more frequent. So what used to be a one in 10 year event um, before we started burning fossil fuels in a one and a half degree world, which is sort of our best case at the moment, that will happen four times per decade. And similarly, an event which used to happen one in 50 years in a one and a half degree world will occur roughly um, nine times every 50 years. So we're going up to one in five rather than one in 50. So that means that the heat wave we used to think of as um, once a generation or almost once a lifetime, we'll see you know once a decade instead, which is quite a big change. Um, that I've seen in this report and which is one of the areas where we're, we're going to have to make some changes even if we get our act together and actually cut emissions quickly. Mm. What about corporations and business? I know that they obviously making products for consumers, which are all us, but what does the report say, if anything, about what business and corporations should be doing? So the report itself says very little about what um, anyone should be doing, business included, but it does uh, present a lot of science which will, A, help business prepare for the future we're coming into, but B, show them the trade-offs between continuing emissions and reductions in emissions and continuing climate change or a stabilised climate. Um, so there's clearly a lot of discussions to be had about what role big business needs to play. I think big business is realising more and more that this is a material risk for their own operations, and so they're starting to take it more, more seriously. But I think one of the key things to reiterate is that one of the key findings of our report is that the choices we make still matter. And so every tonne of carbon dioxide we leave in the ground, every tonne of carbon dioxide that big business leaves in the ground um, reduces the climate change that we're all exposed to. Mm. I know you're a climate researcher and not a psychologist, but do you get an uh, inkling about when alarms are sounded, how it's received? People maybe just despair and say it's too late, I can't do anything, or they're spurred into action do you, do you have a handle on how reports like this land in the public? Uh, I have a loose sense, but sort of oh, we're moving well outside my expertise area here. Um, but my own experience has been that it really depends on your audience. And for some people, that call to action gets them moving very quickly. For others, it pushes them into the despair bracket very fast. And it's, it's hard to take a one-size-fits-all approach. But certainly the response, at least so far to this report, has been... Um, I would say overwhelmingly positive and it's been a, a wake-up call which maybe has been a long time coming and maybe a lot of people already knew but it certainly seems to be helping to get the conversation going again which I think is one of the key parts of the, the challenge yeah. is having the conversations. And what was your involvement in the report? So I was a contributing author so I helped 
write, uh, I think, five chapters from memory. And my own role was a lot of number crunching. So I did a lot of computer coding, producing numbers, producing figures. And then a lot of others did write a lot of the text around it. So it's a huge team. Um, it's hundreds of authors from all around the world. And so we're all playing our, our small part. But together, it's a, an absolutely massive and mammoth effort, mm. which takes about three years to pull together. There's lots of debate surrounding the report. Is there much debate putting together the report? Yeah, I, I can't explain to you how often... As um, scientists within the report, we are, uh, let's say, disagreeing with each other and how much back and forth there is. Um, we've all done group projects at university and school, and you know how hard it is if you're just even working in a pair to agree with your partner. Try getting 40 scientists who all think that they are the absolute expert on something <laughs> to agree on a wording. It's, um, it's a challenge, but it is one of the most rigorous uh, peer review processes I've ever been through. And at the end, you come out with something which is extremely robust. And I think that's the great value of these reports. And what role will this report play in Glasgow, do you think? I think it'll be a clear message for the governments who are negotiating what options are on the table. And if they really want to stick to the goals of the Paris Agreement, so this international agreement about limiting climate change, what is required? And I think we've become more certain about what's required. And so that helps to um, narrow the field of view, if, if you will, which means that it makes it easy to say which pledges are compatible with the Paris, um, the Paris targets and which ones aren't. And hopefully that at least provides some clarity to the negotiators. And you've spoken globally about events or major events becoming more frequent. Is there any, what, what does that might suggest for Australia? It's, um, yeah, one of the most interesting things about this report is that it's actually gone down to the regional level in much more detail than any previous report. So for Australia, there's a few things which um, we can anticipate, some of which are scarier than others. I think for all Australians, the one that will really hit home is there's high confidence we're going to have an increase in marine heat waves and ocean acidity. And these are both, uh, these are both really difficult uh, events for the Great Barrier Reef to deal with. So every tonne of CO2 we can avoid emitting will give the reef a better chance of existing in a form something like what we know today. But already today, the reef is under extreme stress. I mean, beyond, beyond what the reef is going to face, we're going to face, obviously, more temperature extremes. There's high confidence that there'll be an intent, increase in intensity, frequency, and duration of extreme fire events. And for all of you who like skiing, um, snow cover is likely to decrease both here and in New Zealand, in mm. fact, over the next 50 to 100 years. And is, is there anything that you do as an individual that maybe we can look to and or that you would like to see Australians do as individuals to lend our shoulder to the wheel? Yeah, there's, I think there's two layers to this question of, as an individual, what can I do? So the first is that um, there's obviously lots of actions we can take individually at home. So you can fly less. That makes an instant impact on your own personal emissions. Driving less helps. Eating less meat also helps. But I say less deliberately here because in 20 to 30 years, we need to be at zero emissions. But at the moment, the key is to just get started and to start reducing your emissions. So it's not reasonable to ask everyone to, for example, have a zero emissions diet today. But if we can all make emissions, which all make choices which start us on that process, that's the key thing right now for the next five years, the next 10 years. And then beyond our individual decisions, it's worth thinking about what can I do to influence the system I live in? You know, there's lots of decisions which are made collectively beyond our own individual control. Um, one obvious one is voting a certain way. But there's a professor from Canada named Catherine Hayhoe who talks about just having conversations about the issue helps to normalize it, helps to get it in people's minds. And that's really important as well. And then there's a professor from um, the UK called Doug McNeil, and he says that, look, if you just care about the issue, you'll find a way to help. And I think that's a, a really useful starting point too. All right. Well, the full report can be read at ipcc.ch. Is there an appendice or a paragraph where we're reading it and we go, there you go, that was everything? <laughs> Uh, cross chapter box 7.1. That's, that's the one. That's <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. brilliant. Uh, Zebedee Nichols from the University of Melbourne. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. We were talking earlier about the sweet axe throwing company in Wellington uh, that wanted to get a licence for... To, to be able to serve alcohol to people yeah. who want to chuck axes or hack axes and they were denied. You can't get on the Terps when you're throwing axes in New Zealand because it's a nanny state. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, there's also, so Roxy Jasenko, do you know Roxy Jasenko? 
She was on uh, the Celebrity Apprentice, wasn't she? I mean, was she? Right. Years ago. So she's Sydney socialite. That's right. So she's created a children's product. It's been recalled over fears it can cause kids to choke to death if they accidentally swallow it. <laughs> Which is, to be fair, probably just a bit of a, you know, it's, it's unfortunate for the you business. Think if you're making a child's toy, number one on the in the testing lab is can the child choke on this? Right? <laughs> yeah. And they can. <laughs> so, and the sad thing is she's a, wasn't she famous for public relations? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Oh, was she? Yeah. Ah. Anyway, so Pixie's fidgets, kids can choke on them. And it's named oh, after her daughter, Pixie. So, named Oh, God. Oh, isn't that unfortunate? Poor Pixie. Yeah, 10-year-old daughter, Pixie. And so the ACCC have said, nah, we're recalling you because you can choke. But it made me think, because I was at uh, on the playground, remember the day when we all got punished. Oh, oh and yeah. now now they've reversed it. So police have said they're not going to enforce it. Have they? Not yes. going to enforce what, sorry? They're, they're not going to fine anyone for using playground equipment. But, oh, the, right. but they've been taped off. Yeah, but I think that, you know. Are you telling that, me you can climb over the tape? You can, <laughs> yeah, you can limbo <laughs> under the tape. Uh, the, that's what they've declared. And oh, I, I know that they want friction. I don't think it's recommended that you use it, but yeah. the police have said we're not. So they've walked that back a little bit. But I, I was there on Sunday at a park and, the, you know, the swings, how they're connected to metal chains? Yes. Mm-hmm. So one of the – one side of the swing had disconnected from the metal chain oh, and so wow. there were kids just smashing this <laughs> oh. chain <laughs> and then Gabriel wandered up to the chain. Oh, oh God. Oh, no. Don't. And you thought I could make a kid's toy out of this. Proxy <laughs> <laughs> on the line. <laughs> Actually, that reminds Dad made me a pair of nunchucks because I was obsessed with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, my God. I was so young. And I was like, so I picked up the nunchuck. I had them for five seconds before I decked myself. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was watching Gabriel try and get to sleep and he was bouncing around. And I'm like, because I remember when I was uh, in a pool once and I was jumping up and down to get warm because I got in, uh, we had an above ground pool that wasn't oh, heated. Pool. I think you said you were in the pool. Sorry. No, on. no. Uh, would and, be cold, wouldn't it? Yeah. And so I was jumping up and down and, um, but I w- had my eyes closed and gradually jumped up and down over to the edge of the pool and landed and smashed my teeth. <gasps> and they're still, I think you can still, they're not. The one was shaved down. I'm not happy with them. Anyway, oh, did you How lose it? Did you did you have to? Did you? There was un- like a nerve out? ending. Oh, there was. It was. An, it was really How terrible. Old? Uh under ten, I'd say. Do you know what? It's so interesting you say this because uh, June is at this age where she's very mobile, but I can't contain her. So yes, she donks her head a lot, and I'm a bit worried. I don't know. I don't know what the situation. What I was you, looking after is my that normal. I was looking after my nephew, and I was throwing him up and down. Oh. Who knew ceiling fans were so low? <laughs> no. Not a joke. No. Is the child okay? Yeah, I mean, yeah, The yeah. fan wasn't on. No, the fan was on. It was on? Oh, it was a summer day. Oh, my oh, Lord. Oh, it was probably up to four, is, which is maximum. Is it teeth so or more than teeth? Forehead. Oh. oh, goodness. But, oh, so here's the teeth. Okay, so with the teeth thing, June donked her face on something the other day on a box and um, – I was worried about her teeth because she was crying and I was checking them and I rang a friend and she said, oh, yeah, this is just the age where they knock out all the baby teeth I've just grown. And I went, oh. I don't think that's okay. And then I said, what do I do if she loses a tooth? She's fine, by the way. She just It was just a little fall. But she said, oh, you just hold it in with your finger for 45 minutes. That's what I did with my son and it's been fine ever since. <laughs> I was like, I don't think that's right. I don't know about that. I know, but she, was, she, was, she said that her son always banged his head and she said it just got to the point where she just – had to take measures into her own hands with his teeth and she once just held his tooth in for 45 minutes in the hope that it wouldn't fall out because he'd loosened it. And she goes, it went a little bit brown. It was a baby tooth, so she, there was nothing she could do anyway. Like if it fell out, it's gone and you yeah. wait for the new one. But then it was okay. I'm not saying that's what you're meant to do, people. No. I just was horrified by the idea. <laughs> I'm not ready for this age is what I'm saying. Because there where is. You have to worry about Daniel bopping over the edge of a pool and knocking his teeth <laughs> yeah. out. It's too much. Because there are paediatric dentists. Like, you oh, know, you really? can. Yeah. What? So, so an, a regular dentist, do they do children as well? Yeah. That, well, no. The, this this niche is for baby's teeth. <gasps> And then but to, to have the other advice, 
the sort of like old wives tale, just shove your just finger <laughs> up for 45 minutes. No, no, don't worry just with that eight years of training. Just hold her tooth in. Anyway, luckily her tooth wasn't wobbly. Her teeth have only just kind of coming out, so they weren't wobbly. But I, um, he was horrified by yeah, that. Yeah, because, yeah, Gabriel was jumping up and down and uh, his uh, <laughs> crib, you, you, is it a bed? I don't know. Cot? Cot. Cot, yeah. And, um, and then we crack! And, uh, <gasps> and then he's, t- he's, yeah, cracked a tooth. And so no, now. He's cracked it? Yeah, yeah, chipped. And, uh, but it's fine because as it'll go grey apparently and then just fall out. And then you just hold it in for five years. You hold it in for years. a couple of <laughs> Hold it for five <laughs> Until years. the other ones go back. Uh, but it makes breastfeeding a bit painful. Oh. Because it's like there's a dagger situation. Oh, because oh. it's chipped so it's sharp. Yeah. Oh, well, time to wean. Yeah, yeah, bloody oath. Yeah. Uh, but but that's the thing where, you know, uh, I was pushing him in a pram the other day. Up. Oh, my God. Can I just tell you? I'm not going to try. I'm so relieved to hear people's children. Anyway, it's just relieving to hear parents say that their children also Hurt have themselves. accidents all the time. Oh, of course. Because, mm. I, yeah. And you take risks. I mean. Tell it, me about what you did with him. I pushed him. Oh, this isn't bad. <laughs> no, I didn't put. No, there's more to that sentence. Uh, he was in a pram, but the gr- I was pushing him up a, a a hill, a driveway that was so steep that if something went wrong, it's like what you see in the CCTV footage. Oh, don't. Where you go? How could? How did that happen? Has it even happened? What would have it, gone wrong? You would have tripped over, and the the pram, pram would have gone. It would have flown. All right. Like gathered immense steam. And so I guess the idea is you should take him out at the bottom of the driveway. But isn't it more dangerous to try and carry him up a steep hill and then Yeah, but he's not going to roll down like a slinky. But you might fall on him. You might roll down. down. (laughs) I might roll down. That's true. Anyway, there's danger everywhere. There is, truly. So don't beat yourself up, Roxy. (laughs) (laughs) Triple. Ah. Irvi Majondo is back on Breakfasters as our Friday funny bugger. Good morning, Irvi. Morning. How are you? Yeah, we're good. There's a rainbow, or there was briefly a rainbow, which... Yeah. Ah, really? Okay. Yeah, over Melbourne, but it's gone ah. now. It's raining ah. now. They, they put, yeah, they put police tape around it. And <laughs> <laughs> Do not look up. <laughs> no fun allowed. Mm. Um, oh, that's nice. Yeah, I've been, um, yeah, I've been dead to the world for a bit, um, just sleeping um, and lockdown. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I was just thinking a little bit about, um, just like how I I really feel sorry for the kids. Do you guys have kids that are at school and stuff at the moment? Not at school. No. Yeah. Not not at school. school. Yeah. It's like really tough for, um, year 12s, year 11s. Um, and I was thinking back to like my formational high school memories and how they're missing out on like year 12 formals now. And that would have killed me. Um, do do you have, do you remember your year 12 formal? I had like a Deb, a Deb ball. Oh, uh, yeah. In year 11. Were you, did you like, was it like the biggest night of your life? I mean, it was. You know what, though? They made it dry, so there was no alcohol because people had got uh, so drunk on previous years. So my parents and uncles and aunties were not happy about it, but it was a fun night. Yeah, I loved cool. it. That's, that sounds fun. Yeah, my year 12 formal, um, it was like, yeah, I, I was like obsessed with it, planned it like notoriously, um, but I think it's because I went to a girl's school, so I think that checks out. Um, <laughs> I feel like if you go to, like, a girls' school – if you go to, like, a single-sex school – I'm sorry, if you go to a co-ed school, it's, like um, – I feel like it's, like, whatever. But if you go to a girls' school, it's, like, this is my wedding day. <laughs> <laughs> really got that intensity. So it was, like, recess, lunchtime, after-school planning it. Um, but, I, I, yeah, I went to, like, a pretty conservative all-girls school and ours was okay, but um, in our year level – the biggest thing you could do is get invited to the boys' school formal. Um, and that was, like, that was like intense um, because they had it at Grand Hyatt every year. And I know it was, like, with children, like, calm down. Um, 
It's at the Grand Hyatt, and then they also their school mascot was a unicorn because um, you know, like dreams can come true. Um, <laughs> and every year they had a giant ice sculpture of the unicorn at the Grand oh. Hyatt. Oh, wow. uh, I know it was insane, and like if you were cool at all, you had to get a picture of yourself licking the ice sculpture because before COVID. <laughs> So it's like all these, like, you know, 18 to 17-year-olds just licking this huge ice sculpture and that had to go on MySpace and they were just like the rules. Uh, So it was like a pretty big deal. And then I remember like on the day of the formal to come, um, like 53 of us were invited because I counted. Um, (laughs) And we all wrote fake notes from our parents saying that we had to go home early to go to doctor's appointments. Um, And then the teachers cottoned on and were like, you don't all need to, like, you know, go to a doctor's appointment. So, um, you know, because I went to, like, everyone was pretty submissive where I went to school. So they were all like, yeah, yeah, we were lying. Like, please let me still sit my maths methods exam. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but I I was, like, for some, I was, like, in a dark place. I feel like I was, like, just trying to really hard to be a rebel at that stage. Um, and I was like, no, I really do need to go to the doctors. And I made up the excuse that... I was pregnant and I had to deal with it before 7.30 that night before the formal. (laughs) Yeah. It was like the most insane thing I've done. And then I had to explain to like, they were like really disturbed, the teachers. And I had to explain my case to so many. It was like the counsellor, the coordinator, the principal, um, and just explain like that I needed to deal with this pregnancy really quickly um, (laughs) and still get like hair and makeup done by eight. Oh my god! <laughs> it was so bad. It was like so traumatic. And then by the time like I finished up with all of like the arguments, um, we were meant to go home at three, and I got to leave at like two forty-five. Um, so <laughs> really got owned for that one. And then I had to do counselling sessions with our um, like this like really old man for a week after that. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it was the worst time. Um, but yeah, so the I'm kids are like, really missing out. Yeah, I'm just like, you know, you miss out on that kind of origin story. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Did you have a uh, school, you know, uh, I just want to wish you well or I hope you have the time of your life or was there there an anthem? Um, We had a a literal school anthem that we sang in Latin (laughs) at every school assembly. Um, Oh, jeez. And I feel like we did have... Uh, school it was like some sort of song that wasn't a pop song but it was like basically like I want to be perfect and that's why we all had like anxiety disorders Um, (laughs) (laughs) it was like nothing's ever good enough and I'll never make it but it's just yeah we were very highly strong at the year level (laughs) goodness me you made me curious about the when you say the uh ice unicorn I've already googled it (laughs) oh really yeah because I wanted to find out what the school was yeah oh right yeah It's um, pretty well known once, um, yeah, I feel like of that era you mentioned Ice Unicorn and you know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, my Year 12 formal was held at a venue that is now motels that are so unsafe that local paramedics have raised safety concerns and won't attend. <laughs> oh, my God, really? <laughs> yeah. Really? That's epic. Yeah, this, this formal Katy Perry crashed it legit on the night. It was crazy. So what? I know. You can Google are it. Are you a princess? I said, are you a princess? <laughs> I wish. No, I was really pissed off. Um, <laughs> no, I like, because I did, I was like obsessed with drama and theatre and stuff in high school and like the boys that were also like the theatre boys, um, made, like basically practised all year the single ladies like dance by Beyonce um, and they were like in the mid- middle of like this beautiful performance and that they'd practised so hard for and then Katy Perry like storms in and it's like, High school prom. Yeah, guys, prom night. Oh, <laughs> my God. I know. It was crazy. All the boys, like, everyone just stopped everything. They never got to finish their dance. Everyone went ape shit. And, oh. um, like, my date was like, move out of the way. Can I <laughs> 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 it's like, I oh literally got rid of a fake pregnancy for you to be here. Um, oh, my God. Like, Did Katy Perry lick the ice unicorn? Yeah, probably. I can't believe enough. kids are missing out on this. I know. It's actually, I mean, like, yeah, you don't need to, yeah, it's like, 
it's not exactly a great formational memory um, beforehand, but you miss out on all the fun. You know um, when how celebrities do get offers to attend, as I suppose Katy Berry may have, like, oh, will you be my date to the formal? Would you ever do that? Um, not, but only back in the day when I was like really obsessively and I did DiCaprio. Um, but now I can't respect him. No, but in this in this situation, you would be Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, would I? Oh, Oh, (laughs) I can't even dream past my high school. Um, uh, would I go and crash a formal? No, I feel like that'd be creepy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) She wasn't asked, by the way. She just like happened to be around Grand Hyatt. Okay, I'm I'm still sour on this. Oh, that's amazing. Um, well, I'm glad the pregnancy worked out and everything. So, Thanks. Um, <laughs> I started very happy. Yeah. Um, Irvi, unless you've got anything to promote, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, I mean, I do a um, Sex in the City podcast called Sex in the Sex in the Sex um, that comes out weekly on Tuesdays. That's about cool. it at the moment. Yeah, Google that and I'm I- sure you'll end up straight <laughs> in the podcast. <laughs> Obviously, we've been talking about Sex in the City for the whole show, so that's just a really nice little touch thank yeah, you it yeah is. putting oh, a no, bow on it all are you looking awesome. forward to the movie um yeah i just want to i think we're just going to get drunk and bitch about it so it's it's going to be a fun <laughs> whether if it's bad or if it's good it'll be great totally yeah. no samantha though dying <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much Amy. <laughs> thank you so much triple r You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs>